Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. This message today in uh, the Gospel of Mark, (laughs) in the church that I grew up in, this would be like a message that you would give on Sunday night. Like pastors don't tackle this message on Sunday morning very often because it's so complicated, it feels like. It feels complicated. It's like one of those things you got to really work at. It's the kind of thing that you say to people, I'm just going to say it too, like, hey, if you're new with us today, if this is your first time with us, if, you're, if this is your first Sunday, if someone invited you to come to church, if you're not in church all that often, this is kind of one of those messages that... that um, uh, you just kind of wrestling through, you might not expect on a Sunday morning because it's just, it's, it's deep into the fabric of the scriptures and so it's not an easy message to create all the context and to um, just present it in a way that's like, what has this got to do with me? Um, it, there, there is a way uh, to do that. I mean, I can tell you, if you, if you wanted to just sum this whole chapter of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, if you wanted to just sum it up in one phrase, it would just be watch and um, stay alert. Watch and stay alert. Um, Watch and stay alert because um, as uh, um, as we approach the end of the age somehow, as, as we look towards um, the end, so to speak, and Jesus' return, um, in, in, the, in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says at, at, at the beginning and at the end of these uh, verses, watch, pay attention, and stay alert. Not so much watch, pay attention and stay alert, like looking up into the sky, waiting for me to return. That's not what he's saying. He's saying watch and stay alert, stay awake, pay attention, listen, uh, make sure that you're aware of what's going on all around you and within you and in church and within the body of Christ and with your, within your mission and your mandate. Say, so pay attention to all that. Pay attention to the way you're living. Pay attention to the way, um, to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Pay attention to the mission. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. Stay alert. Sit up. Make sure you're constantly um, on the edge of your seat. (laughs) Not necessarily waiting and looking up in the clouds for Jesus to return. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because things um, are going to get hard. Things are going to get difficult. Things are going to be tough. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Let's, let's, Let's go ahead and look at it. Even though I think the pastor I grew up with, he was such a great guy, Dr. Alan Smythe. He would have said, yeah, I'm going to teach this on Sunday night. Maybe you grew up in a church like I did. We had Sunday morning church, and then we, had, we came back for training union in the little Southern Baptist church I went to, and then we had Sunday night service. And so I feel like training union and Sunday night service just all ran together, and he just got out his Bible and just you know, taught and, um, 
and it took a while to get through certain places, right? So I'm gonna attempt to get through this in one sitting this morning in chapter 13 and not divide it all up, okay? And uh, I would encourage you to spend some time with it. I think there's a lot of things in this chapter that get um, misinterpreted, get taken out of context, get quoted wrong, all kinds of things. Um, So let's start in chapter 13, okay? It says, now as Jesus was going out of the temple courts, one of the disciples said to him, teacher, look at these tremendous stones and buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. It'll be torn down. Verse three, so while he was sitting sitting, uh, on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the signs that all these things are about to take place? And so Jesus began to say to them, watch out. Watch out. Remember I said, watch out. Right at the beginning, he says, watch out that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they'll mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. For a nation will rise up in, uh, for a nation will rise up in arms against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and there'll be famines. And these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Verse nine, you must watch out for yourselves. You'll be handed over to councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings because of me and as a witness to them. First, the gospel must be preached to all the nations or to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over for trial, don't worry about what to speak, but say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will hand over brother to death and, and a, a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, because the one who endures to the end will be saved." Oh, this is just the first 13 verses are crazy. So I'm going to kind of walk you through these first 13 verses. But the first thing I want you to know is, is that um, where we are in the gospel of Mark, right? Jesus is just, we've been through these five sort of scenes or stories, if you will. And they've been really controversial. And Jesus is really stirred things up, Right? He has made the lawyers of the law, the religious leaders, he's just aggravated them like crazy because um, remember, he's kicked out the money changers, right? He, he, he the, you know, the, they were stuffing up the Gentile courts with, um, it, was, it was just a circus full of uh, selling things, right? And remember, Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, um, he, he finds all of this happening, and he gets really mad because he said, this is supposed to be um, uh, a house of prayer. My father said, this is supposed to be a, a place that you would pray. But you can't do that here. Look at what's happening. It's like a flea market here. And... Um, so he really, so he gets angry, he kicks everybody out, he just empties the whole place, right? And it's an indictment on the, on, the, on the religious leaders who are in charge of that arena. So they're pretty upset and they come back to him and say, hey, 
What gives you the authority to do this? Who are you? Why are you doing this? So he's made people mad right and left. Over and over again, he's had confrontation. He's come face to face, toe to toe with these guys. And we've seen this over and over again through about four, uh, five stories, right? Okay. Now remember, he can't stay in the city. He goes back and forth, back and forth all the time. He says to Bethany or to the Mount of Olives, right? And that's where they spend the night. That's where he's spending the night. So he's going back from the city, back and forth, because it's staying at, at, there at night's not safe. Because, okay. So it, uh, I just have some pictures really quick of where he is. It's unique. If uh, you are in the, um, uh, on the Temple Mount, basically you're looking this way to the Mount of Olives. And you see that building in the distance up there with these domes up there. That's just right in front of maybe where Jesus would have been staying the Mount of Olives. And you'd see other scenes like this. <clears throat> uh, this. These are olive trees in this garden area. Now, it's been all groomed, and there's flowers, and things are planted. You see how big and fat those trees are? Keep going, Janet. Um, these are huge olive trees. You know, something beautiful about olive trees is they don't ever really die. The roots don't ever die, so they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if the top dies, it just things just keep sprouting up from the roots. And so these are trees, and I don't know if it's if it's easy to tell, but it takes like three, four people. If you're holding hands like this, put your arms around those trees. That's how old they are. Meaning, uh, most uh, scholars and historians would say these trees were probably around when Jesus was spending a night up here or spending time praying up here. This is where he's teaching from. I mean, these are awesome uh, trees and gardens and olive trees and stuff. And there's buildings all over the top of these things and stuff. Um, go back one just really quick. Yeah, just sit right there for a minute. So he's, um, he's sitting down with his guys. As you look at this, these first few verses, <clears throat> and he's going out of the temple courts and he's going back and forth with him. And, uh, um, and, and he has said some things, right? He said some things to his guys, and, if, and I feel like his, his guys are kind of upset with him because he's been so harsh on the religious leaders of the time. He's been really harsh with them. And so they're kind of going, hey, hey, you know, you're, it, it's, it's like they're, 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 they're talking with him and they're trying to get him not to be so hard and harsh on these guys and the way he's talking about the temple and how it's going to be destroyed and all this kind of stuff. See, look at these first few verses. It says, Jesus was going out of the temple courts one, and one of the disciples come to him and says, teacher, hey, hey, look at these tremendous stones and buildings, right? And Jesus says, Do you, you see these great buildings? Not, not one stone's going to be left on uh, another, this place is going to be toppled and torn down. Now go to this picture. When, when, when you go to uh, this um, Jerusalem, when you go to the old city, when you go to the Temple Mount, they, there's this pile of rubble right there that is supposedly um, remnant from the destruction of the temple right there. And these are gigantic stones. They're huge. Some of these stones are supposedly 14 to 18 feet long and, and, and tall. They're giant stones. And here's just a, a pile of stones right there from the destruction of the temple. 
You can go by, you can tour, you can see these things everywhere. Now, you know, we're looking at the side of this wall right here that's been uh, built since then. But it's, it's nothing but destruction. And, and, you know, there's no necessary, not necessarily, you know, we're not sure what, you know, which ones those are, if they're actually those stones or not, but they're everywhere. So it's, it's not like people just came in and carted off big, giant piles of stones. And, um, you know, there's still tons of rubble all around, all, all, all around, just like this. So, so, so later, if you keep going through here, what you see is, in verse three, it says, so while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, all right, and we go, go back to that picture just really quick. Um, I don't know, I think it might have been, uh, keep going back into those, just keep going back one more. I, I don't know if it's in there or not, keep going, just one more, let's see. Ah, I think that was it, isn't it? There, there might not be any more pictures. Yeah. But you can see the Temple Mount from the garden really easy. That's all I was trying to do. I, I got it the opposite way from the Temple Mount. You're looking at the garden, but you, from the garden, you can see the Temple Mount. And you can see the, the golden dome, you know, uh, that's over the top of where the Temple Mount is. It's that Muslim mosque that's sitting on top of it now. So he's looking out over that in the garden. It's like the opposite of this. And he's sitting there, it says, in verse three, opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask him privately. So I, this is what I think's happening, and lots of scholars think this, this is probably what's happening. They're, they're, they're so uptight with the way he's talking about the temple and the destruction and all of this, and he's been harsh. It's like all of his guys get together and they send this inner circle of guys, his best sort of friends kind of people, right? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, these are his guys. They send to him to, to kind of reason with him a little bit and sort of settle him down <laughs> and talk, talk to him a little bit, right? It's like they send a delegation. So he sits down and does some fantastic teaching, and it's kind of traditionally called this teaching that he does, the Olivet Discourse. It's, he starts talking about how things are going to go. And it's somewhat complicated. This is what I wanna, want you to know, is over these next few verses, what's going to happen here? He warns his disciples that, that the betrayal, the trial, the persecution he's about to endure is going to be repeated for them. That's really what he's saying. These are like signs uh, most people think that they're signs, and I'm going to say, and not every scholar would say this, not every pastor would say this necessarily. This can be interpreted uh, a lot of different ways, but I'm going to say they're actually not signs. They're not signs. Most people regard these next few verses through verse 13 in particular, these are signs of the... Uh, uh, of the end and, the end, and when um, Jesus will return. And you got to look for these signs. And I'm going to say, I'm going to take the position that these are not signs. Jesus is starting to teach. I want you to look through the lens of just these guys that he's talking with. Just the disciples. I think you need to view it. I think we need to view it just from their perspective. 
Not everybody would take that tack, but that's the tack I want to take. Let's just listen through their lens. And then after listening through their lens that he's trying to encourage them and know and understand and warn, he's saying, watch, pay attention, be alert, don't fall asleep, don't get lazy, then I think you can apply it to to your and my life, okay? So he's trying to say his way will be their way. Jesus was not spared betrayal, arrest, flogging, Uh, by Roman authorities, and neither would they, and that's what he's trying to tell them. What they're going to suffer would become the doorway to all kinds of evangelism. So Jesus didn't seek his own um, acquittal. He saw the sovereign hand of God as he's looking over and he's telling these guys about it. He sees the sovereign hand of God placed on him in the hands of the authorities to give testimony to kings and accomplish redemption for the world. So a few short days after Pentecost. So, so you remember, you, you, you read through all this stuff right here as, as he's talking and he says, uh, and they say, well, tell us when these things are going to happen. When, when, when? And that's all we want to know is when, right? That's, that's, the, that's what we ask. When, when, when? And I'm telling you, it's the wrong question. Just like these guys are asking, it's the wrong question. When? Forget when. Forget when. Jesus doesn't actually necessarily say when. He starts asking them to pay attention. So a few short days after Pentecost, this is after Jesus has ascended. This is after, he said, remember, he said, wait, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. So after they wait and the Holy Spirit empowers them, at Pentecost, Peter and John find themselves in Jesus' shoes, just like Jesus is about to face. And They find themselves doing exactly as Jesus did. The apostle Paul viewed his own trial in the same light. So Paul, later on, he gave glory to God for each of his imprisonments, knowing that these were holy instruments to bear witness to kings and all of his imprisonments. So so Jesus is saying to these guys, this is the way it's going to happen to me, and it's going to happen to you in, in, in the same way. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Before the temple is destroyed, all these Christ followers would begin to give bold testimony of Jesus. So Jesus says it's, it, it would go on that way until the apostles had preached the gospel into to the, the whole known world, to all nations, okay? So he's talking about then. He's talking about then. And this was uh, what they believed in the way they preached until AD 70 when the temple was actually destroyed. So Jesus states that the tool for worldwide evangelism is it's going to be persecution. And he continues on by saying that the Holy Spirit would speak through Jesus at his trial uh, and, and, and would boldly speak through them before their accusers. And that's what happens. They get in front of people and they just start preaching it because the Holy Spirit empowers them. 
And then he tells them that they don't need to fear or even prepare for what they would say. The spirit would strengthen them and speak through them with courage. Their greatest trial would turn out to be their finest hour. So when you view this all in this light, you see all these courageous sermons happen in Acts. In the Acts of the Apostles later on after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and he ascends. And then Pentecost happens, and the church is birthed. All of this happens. The temple's destroyed. Peter before the Sanhedrin. Remember, Stephen before the elders. Paul before Felix and Agrippa. All these things, right? If you read your Bible, you'll see that these guys started really preaching it. And this is what Jesus is saying right here. It's going to happen. During this entire period, the disciples could expect all kinds of crazy persecution to be the tool that opened doors to worldwide witness. But that's not all. Times have become even more intense. So, so then Jesus moves on. He starts telling them from this stuff that's happening in this political sphere to an intimate scene of scenes of home and social community where the disciples could expect and what they could expect in those arenas about brother against brother and family and parents and all this upheaval, Right? Total social breakdown within your family and other things, which is the most intimate bonds of our society. They're all severed, right? Brother betraying brother. And, 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 and how painful. Parents and children, rather than nurturing and caring for each other, right, betraying one another to, de to death because the gospel provokes such hatred. These are all the things that, 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 that began to emerge, But before, they, before he lets them just be overcome with all this dread, Jesus hints that, there's a, that, that these terrible conditions of betrayal will have, have, an, have some effects. Betrayal was going to weed out the unfaithful that, that begins to infiltrate the ranks of the Christ followers. And at the same time, it's going to forge this really strong bonds of these disciples. And the love of Christ is going to grip their soul so much that they're going to persevere and they're going to absolutely be unaffected by men. And so their, their betrayal and, and all of this suffering and, and all this is going to produce a, a, a magnificent loyalty to Christ. And this is how the church is birthed. The account of Stephen and how he's stoned and how he's, he says... It, it, it's, it's, it's shocking, he says, as he's being just stoned to death, some of the same kind of things that Jesus says when he's crucified. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just like Jesus says on the cross. It's shocking. What a gift Jesus gives to his disciples right here. He's telling them, it's going to get awful. And here's how it's going to go. And it's, it's, a, it's foreshadowing what he's going to go through and then what they're going to go through. Now, when you see it like that, then you can say, okay, and these are going to be some things maybe that are going to happen again to the church. But first, you got to get there.
He places these guys in center stage on a new horizon of history. It is these guys, these disciples, not the current leadership that's in charge, you know, all the religious leaders, and remember how corrupt it is, the system of sacrifices, all these things, it's all gonna go away. The temple and all of this stuff is gonna go away, not the leadership in Jerusalem anymore. They're not gonna be the movers and the shakers of the new universe. Jesus paints a picture of the future for the disciples that, that's different. These are these birth pains that are going to be standard operating procedure right up until the time they see what Daniel called the abomination of desolation. Now go to verse 14. Now let's, let's unfold the, the rest of this story, okay? Look at verse 14. Now that they've seen what we've called the beginning of labor, now we come to the end of the labor process which would, be the cli uh, would climax in the most severe pain, terrible pain, terrible, most terrible pain maybe in the, hi in, in the history of the world. This tribulation, and we're not talking about the tribulation that's to come later, we're talking about the tribulation that happens right in the midst of the temple being destroyed. That tribulation, it would simultaneously bring about two things, death of the old order and birth of the new. In this text, you're going to learn, you get to see that God's most precious gift comes at the greatest price. So verses 14 through 23 is this description of this great tribulation that happens then. We're not talking about the future necessarily. So look at verse 14, what to watch for. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the readers understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So Jesus has already told the disciples that all the things which he referred to in verses 5 through 13, all those things are the beginning of birth pains. But now he identifies the severe pain that is as, is a pre, prelude to judgment, okay? So when you see that, uh, that, Jesus says, flee to the mountains, he says. He's referring to a well-known expression that they would have known, the abomination of desolation, a term that's used four times in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 8, 9, 11, and 12. And this image was familiar to the Jews, they knew about this. They had painful memories uh, of, of the time, uh, of this time, all right? When altars were um, uh, erected to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings and a, and a swine or, you know, a pig was uh, sacrificed on it and made the practice of Judaism a capital offense. So they know about this. Well, that is the background. Jesus tells his disciples that when they see the abomination of the desolation standing where it shouldn't be, Mark says right here, let the reader understand that they, you're, you're to leave, you're to run, you're to flee, you're to get out of here. So when the zealots took over the temple as their headquarters, they carried out an, a number of extremely disrespectful acts. They did terrible things. They, they interrupted the sacrifices. They shed innocent blood. They, they, they held mock uh, a, a mock installation of their own high priest. And when they saw this occurring, all kinds of Christ followers evacuated the city and the temple, the temple had been defiled. And this meant that destruction was imminent. And this is what happened. 
It was an awful, terrible time. Just pathetic. Leads us to the next point, what to do and why. Look at verse 15. The one on the roof must not come down or go inside to take anything out of his house. You've got to leave. The one in the field shouldn't turn back to, to get his cloak or his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing their babies in those days. Pray that it may not be winter because that would make it even worse. For in those days, there will be suffering. Unlike anything that has happened from the beginning um, of creation that God created until now or ever will happen. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have been saved. But because of the elect, the Christ followers, whom he chose, he cut it short. So Jesus gives the disciples, he's talking to his guys now. Remember this, put yourself in there. That's the way we're looking through this. Not into the future and all that. Look at them and what's going on. Listen through the lens of these guys. He gives these guys explicit instructions that once the temple is defiled, destruction's gonna follow fast. It's gonna be furious. Everybody's to flee. Get out of here immediately. And the reason for this radical warning was that the tribulation that he's talking about that's gonna happen which was about to be unleashed on Jerusalem would be unparalleled in its severity. And by the way, let me say it again. This is a clear indication that this is not the final tribulation. It's clear since Jesus expected many more to follow. It's so severe that the Lord would have to set a limit to its length in order to preserve the elect the Christ followers. So why? So, so we shouldn't underestimate the savage and the horror of what came upon Jerusalem. We don't, get to, we don't talk through this a lot because it's really hard to put all this together, but there was about three million Jews in the city for Passover at this time. Of those three million, 1.2 million were either killed or enslaved at this time. The greater part of those visiting Jerusalem found themselves shut in and locked in by, by the Roman army. The holy city had become a prison with all the food and water supplies cut off. They endured a, a fierce famine, raging disease. The dead were everywhere. Conditions were so awful, they were so severe that, that, that people were hoping that the Romans would just break through the walls and put the, an end to their misery. That's how awful it was. So during this terrible time, the disciples could look for God's sovereign, climactic intervention to bring an end to the trouble. So next, look at verse 21. Jesus adds another warning to guard against further deception. He says, what to guard against? Verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe him. <laughs> He says, false messiahs and false prophets are going to appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, uh, uh, the elect of Christ followers. Be careful. I've told you everything ahead of time. So Jesus declares that during that, this critical time, many false prophets are going to rise up and use this time of stress as an opportunity to promise things and freedom and liberation from Rome. But he says, don't you listen to that garbage. In summary, the Lord's told the disciples precisely what to look for. The abomination that makes desolate. Desolation. Exactly what to do. Flee. Leave Jerusalem. Run. And what to watch out for during this severe tribulation that happens. 
false messiahs with false hopes, false freedoms. So you can see Jesus is being pastoral here and practical. This, this stuff is for the apostles. I don't know, maybe you've read a lot of books about this and we get going on this and don't think through this lens and we think, oh, this is about, these are signs of our times and throughout the ages for, for 21 centuries, people, people look at this and they're, they're all looking around for the signs and when and when and when and I'm telling you, you can't think like that. So Jesus describes this climactic event that everything has been leading up to the end of this severe labor, this really painful time, which simultaneously brings about a complete destruction of the old Jerusalem and a new creation of people, of, of the people of God under the Son of Man. So here's the second point, the end of the, the end and the beginning, verses 24 through 27, and, and the end of this city right here, Verses 24 and 25 in particular says, look at verse 24 and 25. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon won't give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. So at this point, you, you might expect Mark to say, then after this great, terrible time, this great tribulation, Jerusalem will be destroyed. But instead, he uses apocalyptic imagery. And this is where people get really confused right here. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars are going to be falling from heaven. Why does he use imagery like this? On the surface, it sounds like the end of the world. Crazy language that he uses right here. And the reason is that kind of language was used by Israel's prophets to describe earth-shattering things, implications that would accompany the destruction of a dominant world force. So when the prophets in the Old Testament described the overflow of these mighty powers, they did so in apocalyptic imagery. So this is what Mark uses. And the reason was that these events were so earth-shattering, so awful, so shaking, that the end of the world language is the only set of metaphors that, 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 that are adequate to express the significance of what will happen. So you got to be careful about reading into this wrongly. So now that earth-shattering language that was used to describe the complete destruction of like Babylon in the Old Testament, it's used about Jerusalem now. With the same intensity, the powers in the heavens are shaken. A new cosmic order has begun. No longer will Jerusalem and its temple be the spiritual center of the world. I got to just sort of get a glimpse of this. I don't think I understood it till I actually visited Jerusalem and I listened to a Messianic Jewish rabbi say, you know, because I'm, I'm looking out over this and I'm going, oh, a Muslim mosque is built right on top of the Temple Mount. That makes me so mad. And he's like, why would that make you mad? This isn't the center of, the, of, of our spiritual life anymore. This is where Jesus has decided to build his temple right here. He, did, he, he said, it's just a pile of rocks. <laughs> Why would you care about that? Who cares? You can go and weep at this wall all you want. You can pray to these, you can, you know, these rocks mean nothing. <laughs> this is where Jesus chooses to, to live now. This is, this is where he builds his, his temple. This is where God lives. This is where he exists. 
all, around, all over the place, all over these unbelievable uh, um, 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 places where Jesus walked and all these places. There's stuff built all over the top of it. The place where Jesus was teaching with, in Peter's house, you remember that? And the, 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 the white synagogue, all those places, all that rubble, there's stuff built all over the top and you, you just want to go, ah, oh, I wish it wasn't like that. And he, he's like, what? why? They build all this stuff all over the top of it and they charge money to see it and everything. He, he said, I think you should be thankful for it. It just protects it and it keeps it from going away. Let it be. The center, no longer will Jerusalem and its temple be the spiritual center of the world. The center will be Jesus and his new temple with these 12 disciples as the foundation stones now. Those pile of rocks, who cares? <laughs> Pentecost. Peter is used exactly, uh, he, he, Peter used exactly the same imagery to capture the earth-shattering significance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit poured out on the disciples. It was nothing less than a, a, a cosmic new creation. That's, that's all this biblical imagery now. Look at the next point, because the enthronement of the new king and his people happens in verse 26 through 27. Then everyone will see the son of man arriving in the clouds with great power and glory. So with the final destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the disciples would see what Daniel described as the vindication of the son of man enthroned in the heavens. Daniel's prophecy held great fascination for the Jews and they looked for the coming kingdom, the prophet portrayed Israel's enemies as wild beasts looming on the horizon. So amazingly, Jesus adopts the same imagery. He reaches back into, the, into Daniel and the Sunday school story, so to speak. This imagery for the destruction of the temple, Israel and her rulers would become like one of the beasts opposing the rule of God. So you got to read your Bible. You got to read Daniel. You got to see where he gets all this language but they had now been overthrown by the Son of Man. That's Jesus who enthroned, who's enthroned in the heavens. So the coming of the Son of Man is language that describes Christ's everlasting rule from heaven. And the destroying forces opposing his rule. So here you see his vindication and the destruction of the city, an event that Jesus at his trial, and Jesus is his trial, and we'll get to this. At the trial of Jesus, he tells the high priest, he would see in his lifetime this stuff, and he does. The next verses follow precisely Daniel's imagery. Look at verse 27. Then he will send angels, and they will gather his elect, Christ followers from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. Not only is the Son of Man firmly established in his rule, but the rule is shared among God's elect, Christ followers, the church, with people from every nation coming together as one under the rule of the Son of Man. Who do we worship today? Who do we declare? Who are we praising? Who are we singing about all morning? The Son of Man, Jesus. The gathering of the, of the elect represents the fulfillment of Israel's ancient hope of the gathering of, the, of scattered, uh, scattered Israel. A worldwide evangelism 
is carried out until the final day. The final day being the second coming, which Christ followers refer to as the rapture, right? Or scholars, excuse me, refer to the rapture, the point of the imagery in this context is the establishment not only a new king enthroned in heavens, but new people of God, made up of all races and all nations now, the universal church who served this king, the son of man. So now we have the death of the old temple and the city followed by the vindication of the son of man and his kingdom. And Jesus concludes this amazing talk up here on this Mount of Olives, up by these olive trees with three words about the timing of that day and the responsibility of the disciples to watch. So that's this... Um, next point, watching the timetable, verses 28 through 32. Look at verse 28. Learn this parable from the fig tree. Whenever its branches become tender and, put, and puts out its leaves, you, will, you, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, know that he is near right at the door. So Jesus ends this, this whole thing with really great advice for the disciples about observing the times. First he says, a careful observer is gonna be able to know with certainty that he's gonna understand the seasons right now. Have you noticed in Tucson? It's kind of warmed up, got a little chilly this week, but it's warmed up. Already have you just been, have you been watching? The desert's about to just unleash. He says, just look at the tender branches and leaves on the fig tree. Every Jew in Israel knew when summer was approaching. So the disciples would clearly know that when they saw these things, the destruction of the city was near. It was right at the door. So Jesus keeps going. And the time has a limit. Look at verse 30 and 31. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass So. Jesus says, not only would they know when the season had arrived, they would know its approximate time limit. These things would all take place within this generation, about 40 years. It all happens within 40 years, right there. Jesus is so, so sure of this fact, he stakes his entire, all of his credibility on this statement. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So however you want to interpret the fulfillment of what Jesus has said, you must somehow land all these things together, not just some of them. They all happen together within that 40 years as occurring within the lifetime of that generation. This has been the major factor in the way I've sort of like seeing this, and I'm hoping to challenge you to see this whole thing. So the season will be clear, and its time has a limit, but there's something that the disciples would not be able to determine. And he says, the hour is unknown, verse 32. But as for the day and the hour, no one knows it, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Only the Father knows. Not even Jesus. So they may know the season. They wouldn't be able to determine the day. No one knows that. Not even the angels or Jesus. Only the Father. It's the same with childbirth. Got a good idea when the baby's coming and when it's close. It's about 40 weeks, but no doctor can predict the day of delivery in the exact time, right? So Jesus explains that there's a very important reason for this. Watch, B. 
be responsible, stay alert. Look at verses 33 through 37. Watch out, stay alert. You don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. Think about this. He left his house, put his slaves in charge, assigning to each of his, to, to, to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Stay alert then. Pay attention because you don't know when the owner of the house is going to return, whether during the evening or midnight or, or when the rooster crows at dawn, or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. So the reason for their not knowing the exact time is that the mystery, it, it, it heightens responsibility. And it can't be overstated here. Three times Jesus repeats his command to stay alert. He's like a man who's leaving on a journey, charging his trusted staff with important responsibilities. They were the doorkeepers to the new temple in charge of all the master's precious possessions. The very fact that they were unaware of the precise time of his return ensured that he would know who was responsible and who wasn't being responsible. Hmm. They were the doorkeepers. It's a credit to all the apostles that they took these words seriously. They labored wholeheartedly. They preached. They persevered. They preached the gospel faithfully through their generation. There were not, they, they, they were not sleeping in 70 AD when the temples destroyed, when the destruction came. They were using their gifts to the full as the faithful doorkeeper to the new temple. So how should we respond to this? The last point is, it said crushing judgment. See, judgment is this strange work of God. He's a just God. He doesn't take delight in it, though. He doesn't, I don't think he likes judging. He delights in salvation. He wants to see people saved. God carries out the judgment I think with extreme reluctance. It's not what he wants to do. But the time, or by the time faithless Israel fell under its curse, this, this terrible stuff, most of the inhabitants in there during that time were in their 70s or 80s. They were elderly. They were, they were given right up to the very final days to repent. But most didn't do, didn't repent. And when judgment came, it arrived with a severity and a finality. And I believe Jesus emphasized the severity of this time, this tribulation, because he wanted every generation to feel the weight of their choices and what lay in store for those who refuse the gospel. At that time, it was like being in hell being held captive in a city under siege, shut up, sealed up like a tomb inside of a, a, a community that was devouring itself, surrounded by people yet totally alone. If we resist him for a lifetime, these are the implications. So if we resist him for a lifetime, our choices are gonna seal us in hell forever as well. 
So this event of this great tribulation becomes typological, final judgment, typological meaning. Now you can think about the future. What are the implications for us? You gotta look through the lens of these guys. I know it's complicated, I know it's hard. I'll leave you with one verse, 2 Peter 3.10. You can can turn to 2 Peter 3.10 if you would like. It's a great verse. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now you can think about the future. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze and the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. I know it's complicated. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. Don't get too wrapped up in all of it. Just watch. Just stay alert. Be responsible as Christ followers for engaging in this mission and this mandate that he's given us. If you start thinking about all this in the future, if you start watching the news too much, if you start looking around at all the wars and rumors of wars, that's all. Look through the lens of these guys. Look through the lens of these guys. I think that the end of the story is it does get really awful. It does get really bad. It got bad for them, but they, had, they were full of joy and they preached it and they were bold and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe they were, I, I believe they were loving life as they were living for Christ. And that's who we're supposed to be. Oh, it's rich and it's thick, isn't it? I got to tell you, with all humility, this is rough stuff to kind of journey through and look through, to teach through, to (laughs) study through. It's thick. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. You can't separate this. Chapter 13 is the toughest part to understand in all of Mark. We're going to keep going because now that he's given this talk to his guys, Jesus is headed to the cross. He's headed to the cross. And all this emerges in their time and in that generation. Will you bow your head with me? Thank you, Lord, for these moments together. We pray that, that these kinds of things would motivate us and stimulate us to watch and pay attention, to stay alert in our own journey. You've given us a job. You've given us things to do. And now we know that the temple lives right here. So I pray, Lord God, that we might embrace your son Jesus, that we might believe and we might follow and obey and trust and surrender and stay alert and embrace the gospel and preach the gospel. This is a short time in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, you guys.